Have you ever felt uneasy or worse, trapped within a room or building? Perhaps it was a long, narrow corridor with no discernible exit. Or maybe it was a dimly lit room with a low ceiling. Better yet, have you ever felt a surge of awe when looking at a towering skyscraper or walking through a high ceiling building? If so, you're not alone. The intense reactions you've experienced to the physical environment around you date back to the beginning of humanity and are deeply rooted in our biology. For thousands of years, humans have been making aesthetic and technical building decisions to improve people's health and sense of well-being. The spaces we occupy shape how we feel and heal, and it's no surprise that the world's first known architect, Imhotep, is also considered the founder of ancient medicine over 4,000 years ago. When we arrive at the ER, what feelings do the physical layout bring to mind? And how do we think these spaces can impact our recovery? How can hospitals and wait rooms be physically designed to minimize the risk of contagion or to withstand the environmental perils that come with climate change? In this episode, we examine the nuances of healthcare architecture, touching on the design elements of creating buildings with patient outcomes in mind. We also explore the importance of evidence-based design and the bioethical considerations of architecture, looking at examples from across Canada. Finally, we discuss what it means to design healthcare infrastructure sustainably focusing on the intersection of planetary and human health through the lens of an architect. We would like to acknowledge that here in Toronto, we are on the traditional territory of many Indigenous nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit River, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Huron-Wendat. This meeting place is still home to many First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples, and we are grateful for the opportunity to live and work on this land. My name is Kayvon. I'm Rachel. And I'm Julia. Welcome to episode 112 of the Raw Talk podcast. Healthcare architecture is the design and creation of healthcare infrastructure, which includes hospitals, primary care facilities, and the physical spaces within and around these settings. Healthcare architecture involves creating spaces to optimize health outcomes and streamline the ability of healthcare professionals to work efficiently by creating environments that are non-institutional, non-clinical, and more humanized. We spoke to Dr. Diana Anderson, a licensed architect and a board-certified internist and geriatrician, to learn more about what healthcare architecture is all about. She also explained her unique cross-disciplinary doctor and architect approach, or docatect, to health-based design in the built environment. There's a number of more specific design elements that have been linked to health outcomes. There's a great study that was done by a resident from my residency program a few years before I got there at Columbia Medical Center in New York, at New York Presbyterian Hospital, where this resident noticed that in the ICU, some patients weren't doing as well. And he seemed to think they weren't doing as well in certain rooms versus others. And he did a small study that was published in CHEST, so it was published in a peer-reviewed medical journal that showed if you were a sicker patient by Apache scores, so patients were ranked according to how they came into the ICU, if they were very sick and you were put into those corner rooms where the visibility wasn't so great from the central nursing station, people didn't do well. They had a higher rates of morbidity, morbidity and even mortality. And that study was actually replicated in an architectural publication years later with other metrics and visibility software. Um, And that was kind of shocking, right? Like, 
do we have a responsibility if this is a known phenomenon when people are put into rooms, should we not be putting sicker patients into these rooms if we know that they may do worse? And that's kind of the operations. You can design the most perfect hospital as an architect, but how it's used has to marry in with the design. And that's where the work with policymakers, with administrators, with clinicians comes in. The operations is really important and how it's used. So we have to design for that. Otherwise, it's never going to work. And then there's a really great study, which I use a lot um, in nursing homes again. This is very older adult focused. But in dementia, um, many of your listeners might know that people tend to stop eating and drinking as much as they progress through the disease. And we sort of come away as geriatricians from doing feeding tubes or appetite stimulants. Um, those have a certain amount of harms associated with them. But in nursing homes, um, one thing that was done is to change the design of the table setting. So instead of using white, low-contrast tableware, use high-contrast colors, blues, reds. And in this one paper, it showed that people actually ate and drank significantly more just based on the color of the tableware. And so I'm like, these are small things that have huge ramifications, right? And these are things you can do at home. Um, it's not necessarily something you need lots of money or a hospital to do it. Just an awareness to the fact that the building impacts our social health, our mental health, our physical health. You know, COVID really brought about the social isolation and loneliness um, epidemic. Um, and now we're realizing, you know, if you're socially isolated and lonely in your middle age years, we're not even talking about being 80 in a nursing home, that puts you at risk for a lot of negative health outcomes, including dementia later on. So it has to do with how we design our cities and our neighborhoods our education buildings, our office buildings, not just even healthcare buildings. There's certainly been a big interest in designing for emergency preparedness, which I think is right since COVID, not necessarily just infection, but thinking about climate change, thinking about natural disasters, human disasters, war. Um, we should be prepared for different things. And so buildings should flex if they can to handle anything that might come their way. But... Uh, I just, I'm not sure about designing for um, infection control as a primary driver. I don't think that's the right approach. It has to be sort of multifaceted in how we design healthcare buildings. We asked Dr. Anderson to explain how architectural design elements are evaluated and what the research and development process looks like. The architectural process has a very sort of... Um, tried and true method where, you know, you're very sketchy at the beginning, you're in your schematic design phase, exploring ideas, and slowly that gets more and more refined to a design development construction document phase where like every little thing is measured out and drawn with all of the electrical, mechanical, and services, right? But at the beginning, you start, you know, a certain way and you get to a certain outcome. Um, these post-occupancy evaluations where for healthcare buildings, the firm will go back and study the outcome or sort of an add-on that, that, is not part of the formal process and there isn't sort of money from the client to do that. It's not part of the package. And I think to get at some of that, we probably need to adjust our um, design process whereby we, we make it for a requirement that the building or this, the project is studied or measured afterwards. Some of those post-occupancy evaluations really just touch on, you know, whether it's liked or, you know, people are happy, but, but I think true healthcare metrics should be measured. And you can even go into biometrics, right? You can measure cortisol levels, maybe. You can measure heart rates. You can measure different markers of stress or experience um, in the space. Not may maybe just people's opinions, but go a level deeper. Elements of healthcare architecture can extend even beyond the traditional healthcare setting. 
Statistics Canada forecasts that the population aged 85 years and older could triple to almost 2.5 million people by 2046. As the proportion of older Canadians increases, the need for infrastructure to support an aging population becomes more urgent. A health-focused architectural approach is one way to support the needs of an aging population. For example, aging in place refers to designs or modifications that help someone continue to live independently within their home as they get older. Dr. Anderson shares her insight on how aging in place designs can be applied locally within our communities. I think it's not hard to imagine that physical environment can impact mood, you know, anxiety, depression, social isolation, loneliness, but what about our brains? Like there are people who will tell you architecture impacts our brain and the room you're in right now is impacting how you're thinking. Um, so I think going that step further and studying how our homes and communities impact cognition and what we can do um, is one step that I'm trying to take to understand the home design a little bit better. But it's a huge opportunity in terms of a field for research. Huge. I mean, people talk a lot about aging in place. I think it's more of a kind of nice concept to talk about. I'm not sure that we're doing a very good job of that in Canada and the United States necessarily in most places. Um, I think we still sort of segregate parts of the population with different disease entities or age-related life stages into, you know, separate buildings. And places like Europe might do a better job at integrating sort of intergenerational populations together. But in Europe, there's something called universal design. Um, and you guys have probably heard of sort of ADA over here, like designing for disability, but that's not what universal design does and the idea behind universal design is not designing for people with disabilities and putting sort of a handicapped toilet at the end of the hall and just having one. The idea is every space in every public building in in, in every um, sphere is used by anyone. So if you are 95 and you have a walker or if you are you know, 40 and healthy or if you're 35 and sprained your ankle and need six weeks of crutches or if you're an infant and not yet walking, like all of these types of people should be able to use a space appropriately. Um, it shouldn't be sort of designing for everyone and then sticking in a few, a few spaces for those with quote unquote disabilities. So I like that idea of universal design and that comes into the home, but guidelines for home design and cognitive impairment or aging. I'm thinking about ways we can either retrofit our homes or design them from the beginning. And that's probably the, the key, thinking about how we can design homes and communities that will accommodate life stages, not necessarily only aging, um, but like age-friendly initiatives too in parks, thinking about seating, benches, promoting mobility. Landscape architecture, which is the focus of designing green spaces, came about as a profession due to the need to create places that were beneficial for people's health and well-being within the larger industrial cities. Dr. Anderson notes that green spaces within cities, such as parks, playgrounds, and fields, have consistently been shown to improve both mental and physical health. And then the more macro neighborhood city scales, all of which have to do with health, there's some pretty interesting stuff related to even green space and health. You know, it's well documented that being exposed to green space I mean, the community is beneficial for mental health, for social health, for physical health, um, but not everyone has the same access to some of those parks and types of spaces. Architecture, like medicine, is data-driven. Dr. Anderson explains the emergence of evidence-based design and how it's come to inform modern architecture. There is a field 
called evidence-based design, which started in the mid-1980s when a small paper came out in Nature demonstrating that hospital patients after surgery who had a view of a green park versus a brick wall did better. They went home sooner, they used less pain medicine, higher satisfaction scores from the nurses who took care of them. And this was a very small study, but, but huge kind of implications for the field. And so since then, there's been a lot of different papers written. We even have a peer-reviewed journal called Health Environments Research and Design, or HERD. Um, but I do think that architecture and healthcare architecture have lagged behind that shift towards a data-driven uh, process compared to other professions. You know, law, medicine, bioethics, all of those are moving towards data-based decisions. And I think architecture has been slower to take that on. I think there's probably some concern that if we adopt that scientific methodology, we might lose out on some of the artistic and creative side, which I don't think is true at all. I think you'll always have a balance of both. Um, just like as a physician, there's sort of an art of medicine, right? You can look at all the papers, but the patient in front of you is not who they studied in those papers. They're an individual and you have to tailor what's in the research to the person in front of you and individualize it. So certainly I think we can still be creative in a data-driven process. So I think we really have a duty to think about data and that will get at the bioethics side. You know, if we think about architectural design as a medical intervention and a group of colleagues and I just published a Hastings Center report article, which was the cover story. And that, that was a big project, right? And that was probably one of the most challenging projects I've had in the last few years. But convincing the journal, convincing the audience and the peer reviewers that this is our hypothesis and we have reason to believe design can be just as important as a pill you take from your doctor or a medical procedure you go in for. That was very shocking to people. And we had to really do our due diligence and research and make the argument that, yes, this is true. And if this is true, you know, does it warrant ethical scrutiny the same way clinical processes do? And if we're building buildings without good data and good um, research around them, are we in fact kind of doing research on human subjects? <laughs> because, you know, in senior care, there are things like dementia villages, there are nursing homes where design is done and nobody's really monitoring or measuring things. And then people are using these spaces. And if they're being harmed through these designs, you know, that is sort of a, a form of uh, research almost or experimenting with what we're doing because people are using these spaces and not just one person. That's the thing about architecture if I prescribe something to a patient that is one individual, but architecture is around a long time. And so the nursing homes Ontario, for example, is building now after the whole COVID crisis has happened. You and I and all of us on this call are going to be in those nursing homes one day. So I think there's good incentive to think about the fact that they're going to be around for 50, 75, maybe 100 years. We also can't forget about people who use the space. I, you know, we, we design nursing homes, but are we talking to people who live in them? Not really. Are we talking to patients and clinicians who work in hospitals? We try, but there isn't really a good defined methodology to record those viewpoints in our architectural process. Um, but peer review is important, right? In medicine, in research, peer review is very important. And as architects, we started doing something called POEs or post-occupancy evaluations of our designs. The, the challenge there is often it's the same firm that built the building that does the evaluation, which 
there's a little bit of bias there. You know, I never review my own journal article that I submit. Someone else is going to do it and it's going to be blinded. I just would like to encourage people to, you know, be creative. I think it's a good time in our world with technology, with interdisciplinary thinking to have crazy ideas and go after them um, and not let people sort of put up barriers um, to what you want to do. And definitely trying to blend things together and think on different levels is um, a great thing and I think is the answer to solving a lot of the challenges that were being thrown at around the world. Um, and so just kind of follow your dreams and work with lots of people in outside fields from your own. And I think that just fosters a lot of fun times and innovation. But it's been a fun ride so far. Physicians have been taking the Hippocratic Oath for centuries, which contains a set of ethical rules intended to guide medical practitioners through their profession. Although healthcare architects are not bound by this oath, Dr. Anderson explains that the field is guided by many of the same ethical guidelines. Key to the work of a healthcare architect are the principles of beneficence and non-maleficence, the idea of doing no harm. We were curious to learn more about these ethical considerations. Um, so I did a fellowship at Harvard at the Center for Bioethics a few years ago, and I sort of used that fellowship and bioethics as a glue to, to hold together these two very sort of separate yet similar fields. Um, and it's been pretty exciting. I started to think about our moral imperative as designers to people's health. And the field of healthcare architecture is also fairly new, but just like you can specialize as a physician in an internal system like the lungs or the kidneys, as an architect, you can go on and pursue subspecialty training as a healthcare architect. You know, it is a separate skill set. You have to understand adjacencies when you're planning these buildings. They're quite complex in terms of all the different users and flows. You know, to us, we see patients and doctors and nurses, but there's also linens moving around and medications, and there's lots of technology, so it's complex. Um, so I started to think about what our code of ethics might be. We didn't have one as healthcare architects. And as physicians, we took a code of ethics, and I think every profession has their code of ethics at the core of the professional ethics um, that they have to you know, undertake, but we didn't have one. So writing a code of ethics was sort of the beginning, but then going one step further and thinking about what is our duty as architects. Um, and I think one maybe good example, because in ethics we often think about sort of harms and benefits, just like we do in medicine. Um, I encountered a geriatric inpatient hospital wing in San Francisco where I did my fellowship that had... Um, you know, it was a long corridor with patient rooms on either side, but the floor was a striped pattern. So as you walk down the corridor, you see these horizontal stripes. And I noticed that nobody walked on that floor, and the physicians who work on that unit say, well, patients don't walk. They just don't want to come out of their room. And when you look at the clinical literature, you will find about a dozen studies basically saying that older patients with cognitive impairment don't walk on this type of pattern, given the changes that we see in the visual processing system in the brain. This pattern can be very... Um, disturbing and almost look like a three-dimensional staircase. So it sort of impedes mobility, which is not at all what we want to do with older people. We want them to move around. And I started thinking, well, what if we've done this design, and I believe that decision was made with the best of intentions by the design team um, for aesthetic reasons at the beginning, but there's all this scientific literature and who's connecting that? And is it the architect's responsibility to know this? And if they don't, then who should be speaking up once the design is in place? Because I truly think healthcare design can cause a lot of harm, but can also be extremely beneficial, can prevent illness, can even treat certain things. 
Um, design is really a medical intervention. But I think harms and benefits, thinking about people's autonomy, since I do geriatrics and I think a lot about design for nursing homes, for dementia villages, how can we as architects think about making sure quality of life for people aging in different buildings um, is maintained? Bioethical considerations are a fundamental aspect of a healthcare architect's line of work. Next, we talk to Dr. Michaela Keda, a hematologist-oncologist and the Chief Clinical Planning Officer of Project Horizon, an expansion project for Toronto's SickKids Hospital. So Project Horizon is our SickKids Hospital campus redevelopment and transformation. And so as many of you know, SickKids Hospital spans a number of buildings between University Avenue, Elizabeth Street, Bay Street, Girard, and Elm Street. Um, and the project really started with the build of the Peter Gilgan Center for Research and Learning that is along Bay Street. And what we've done as the next step is we've built a um, administrative and learning and simulation center. And that is really a building that will support the many medical administrative functions, as well as our learning and education functions, as well as a simulation center, which is part of our learning and education. After that, the clinical buildings, which include the atrium, will be renovated. And these buildings need to be either renovated or demolished and rebuilt because they really are quite old. They date back to as late um, as the 1950s and 60s. And really, the infra infrastructure of those buildings is no longer able to support the type of uh, innovative and cutting-edge care that we need to provide to our patients and families. And so the next steps in the project that will span over probably the next 10, maybe even 15 years, will be to demolish the Black and Hill Wings, which are the two oldest buildings now standing, and in their place, build a new patient care tower. Um, it is going to be the Peter Gilgan Family Patient Care Tower, which will house all of what we call the acute care services, which includes our intensive care units, our emergency departments, all of our inpatient units, all of our operating rooms, and uh, all of our diagnostic imaging, which includes our MRI, CT scans, and many others. Project Horizon will expand the hospital by over 3 million square feet by 2035, making it one of Canada's most ambitious healthcare redevelopment projects to date. As some may know, we have to work within very strict Ministry of Health capital planning process guidelines. Um, and this is a multi-step, six-step process that spans a number of years. So we are still in the relatively early stages. We're sort of at step three of the six-stage process. Um, and the way the process works is that the earlier stages are really very high-level planning, and then the later stages as the project progresses are the more in-depth, detailed planning. And so step three is sort of in-between, and throughout all of these steps, steps one, step two, and step three that we are in the middle of right now, we've involved our clinical teams and our patients and families quite a bit. So we've worked with uh, architects and many consultants to um, have meetings with our patients, families, and our clinical teams all together to really spend time understanding what their needs are, how they work, and what they do. And also, more importantly, because it is a multi-step process and because it is a process that spans so many years, 
spending time understanding how they envision their spaces that they will need um, in the 10 years when the hospital is actually standing. Dr. Keda tells us more about her role as the Chief Clinical Planning Officer for Project Horizon. So my role as the Chief Clinical Planning Officer is really overseeing and leading uh, the clinical planning that needs to occur in order for these buildings to be either renovated, expanded, or completely built. Um, as you know, clinical care is really um, advancing and changing almost from day to day. And we want to be in a position where over the next 10 to 15 years, we build buildings that support the care that we provide rather than build buildings where we have to adjust how we provide care to our patients and families to match the architecture. So as the chief clinical planning officer, I really work with our patients and families. I work with our uh, clinical teams uh, to understand how they work and what they need. And then together, we work with our architects and our engineers and our consultants and many others who are involved in designing these buildings to translate for them what our patients and family needs, what our healthcare providers need, so that they can design the buildings that we need in order to provide the care that we do in a way that will work for us. Um, that's the way that I've approached uh, the clinical planning for a hospital, that we're really planning for a hospital and a hospital system. But we're also planning for um, the way that healthcare will be delivered, not only when patients are here um, in our physical spaces. Um, and really highlighted the importance of including the interdisciplinary team members, the community and the planning, and of course, the patients and families, because at the end of the day, it is these folks who spend the time that they spend in our institutions, um, and they need to be in an environment that is one of caring and of healing, in addition to, of course, state-of-the-art clinical care. And as I mentioned before, we really want to build a hospital and a health system that is geared towards the people who work there and the people who are receiving the care. We ideally would not want to be in a situation where all of us have to adapt how we work because the hospital wasn't designed <laughs> in order to support the work that we do and the care that we provide. And so working with architects who are experts in this and consultants and many others who are experts in this, they can tell us what our um, goals may be or what our limitations may be. And we, on the other hand, also tell them what our goals are and what their limitations may be. And together through this uh, very collaborative approach and a lot of discussions, we're able to come up with solutions that probably had we tried to do this, each of us in isolation, we would not have been able to come up with. Piece that many hospitals and outpatient um, institutions have started is to really, really embrace the human-centered design, hearing from the patients and the families that are using these spaces. Because, as you know, our Toronto community is not only growing in numbers, but it's also growing in diversity. And so what might work for one group may not work for another. And so the only way that we can design and build spaces that um, can accommodate and be healing to all of our diverse community is to hear from those folks what they need because we need to make sure that as time passes and as our population grows, as our diversity grows, the needs are met of everyone, irrespective of their cultural, religious, socioeconomic backgrounds. 
Dr. Keda goes on to discuss how one can pursue a career in the field of healthcare architecture. They don't necessarily have to be a healthcare provider, but I think if someone wants to do this work, they do need to be passionate enough to be able to spend some time um, with patients and families, spend some time with healthcare teams, understanding how they work and how they move around the hospital or how they move around an outpatient clinic so that they can really get a sense of what these folks go through every day because that understanding is really, really important to be able to then translate into uh, the physical builds that occur. And the other thing that sometimes, again, people forget that this is a field that's really creative and very innovative. And so having a passion for for creating something that's new and different and maybe scary to some sometimes to people because it's so different, I think having that kind of passion is also really, really key. The other piece, I think, because it is such a quote-unquote small community, um, people are really quite willing and helpful to share their uh, experiences. So even if there isn't you know, a, a right way to do something, people from all over are willing to just have you reach out to them and, and ask your question and give their own personal experience and their own personal um, advice. And the, again, that kind of collaboration and sharing of information is really what allows all of us to be better and to build better. As non-renewable resources continue to deplete, the role of sustainability in human-centered healthcare architecture becomes more important. We reached out to Dr. John Straub, a registered professional engineer and an associate professor at the University of Waterloo's Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering to give us a primer on sustainable architecture. Sustainable architecture is a pretty broad and ill-defined topic, much like sustainable almost anything is. Uh, it's pretty easy for people to use the word, I'm making a sustainable building or I practice sustainable architecture, but actually it almost always is not true. <laughs> uh, it, it's much more likely to say they are being more sustainable than business as usual. They are making changes to their practice, to the choices that they make that is better for the environment, uh, for the long-term operation of the environment than what they used to do. But sustainability is actually a pretty clearly defined term looked at as a scientist. Uh, it, it, it's basically something is sustainable if we can keep doing it forever without destroying the, the basis on which we do it. And by that, pretty much every material that's not recyclable or renewable, uh, pretty much every energy source that's not renewable is not sustainable. So what people really mean when they're talking about sustainability and architecture is that they're being better than business as usual. And the challenge with that, of course, is that the label sustainable architecture, therefore, doesn't tell you, are they doing a lot better or are they just doing little weedy steps better? Um, are they, when they say they're being sustainable, are they doing, let's say, a hybrid Hummer? Or are they ditching the car and walking to work? You can imagine that both of those are sold as sustainable activities. And one is a much more meaningful one in a quantitative sense. We can start counting things like what is the carbon emissions of the energy use of this building? What are the pollutants released by cleaning and maintaining this building? I can ask what were the environmental impacts, ecological damage about 
building here and bringing these materials here to erect this building? We can ask those questions and a lot of answers are we can do better. Often we can do a lot better. This is the challenge with what would be a perfect sustainable building. I'm saying it wouldn't be perfectly sustainable. It would be widely spread. It would be scalable. It would be things that would affect the buildings used by billions of people, not the buildings affected by 10 million lucky people. But there are billions of people who are less lucky, and they are the ones who where we'll make a big difference on the overall environmental impact. Not rich people building zero energy houses uh, uh, and not uh, a few showcase buildings that are very low impact. We have to get significant reductions across almost every building. Dr. Straub, your professional portfolio has focused largely on high performance, low energy buildings. Based on your experience, how can we make large urban areas like Toronto or Vancouver more sustainable? In my experience working on these high performance buildings, I've learned over time that the first step is to describe what are your goals. Because I've worked on projects where people want, who are building um, earth plastered straw bale homes with on-site trees used for the timber to make the roof. Their objective in sustainability was actually pretty pretty extreme. Now, a lot of buildings that we work on, and when you say urban, you know, uh, Toronto, Vancouver, guess what? That option is literally taken off the table by, I would argue, with by society. The, the building department, the regulators simply won't allow it. Uh, there are too many unknowns and too many risks that they cannot accept. Um, so really, we're, we're, we're moving in a, a different direction than that extreme. Now, on one hand, we have condos who are being built that are 20% better than the building code. And they do this through a variations of a bit more insulation, better equipment. But really, it's like 20% better than the worst possible building you can build without going to jail. And what's important for an owner uh, who's deciding to embark on a building project is what are their priorities? We have seen how priorities of different stakeholders, such as architects, engineers, patients, and their families, can influence the design and construction of spaces. Dr. Straub expands on the interests of these parties as they relate to sustainability. Are you also dealing with runoff? Are you dealing with the displaced habitat? How many rabbit burrows are you replacing on that abandoned lot um, to when you put the building there? Is that even important? Um, and, and, you know, that's why, you know, you hear stuff about urban apiaries, um, bird um, sanctuaries, changing our, our buildings so that they have less glass so they kill fewer birds. I mean, this is, is that a sustainability? Well, yes, but it's more of the ecological branch of sustainability. Whereas the people who are saying electrify everything and we're going to use a heat pump to do everything, they're the ones focusing on the operational energy. And then there are people who are saying we should build our skyscrapers out of wood. And that's because they're focused on the supply of the materials and the initial effort and damage done when you're building a building. So that and so all of them can can be good, but all of them depend on your perspective of where you put your priorities. And obviously, society or as a whole hasn't provided us uh, lots of clear direction. Uh, there, you know, some people are saying that 
carbon's important and lots of people are saying jobs are important and lots of other people are saying uh, cheap housing is important. And so it's pretty, you can understand why there'll be all kinds of different responses to a highly diffuse sort of problem set. Next, Dr. Straub discusses how the principles of sustainable architecture can be applied to building responsibly resourced healthcare spaces. When I think of health and architecture, I don't think of hospitals. Um, but uh, let's just start with hospitals. My involvement in hospitals has been a little bit uh, design side in terms of making hospitals more energy efficient uh, while not compromising uh, the health of the building. And um, so that's been a little bit of how do I make the skin of that hospital to be airtight so humid air doesn't leak out and condense? Uh, how do I avoid condensation on the windows? Uh, how do I make the inside of the window uh, warm enough that it feels comfortable? Things like that. A lot more of it is, is understanding how buildings are built. What are the physics and the mechanisms behind what caused the problems that we're observing? Um, and then what are the likely causes of those problems? And then sometimes those likely causes, we can prove or disprove our hypothesis by running experiments, which may involve machines that go bing and have lots of LCD screens. And we try and do that a lot because people have an inordinate level of faith in those. But when I think about health in architecture, I don't think of those failures. I think of how do I make this school a healthy place to be? How do I make the home a healthy place to be? It's trying to imbue those spaces with characteristics that are healthful and avoiding characteristics and risks that I know could be unhealthy. And that, so to me, that is more about the health and architecture side is that it is part of the design of a building or a space, both inside and out, that is architecture that does, you know, doesn't make any obvious mistakes that cause health impacts. Uh, and then also depending how far you want to do this, it actually makes uh, a healthier environment. Regulatory wise, and from a professional standard of care, there's a certain minimum level that engineers and architects can't fall below. You know, we can't, you know, one of the first rules of engineering is don't kill anybody. And so when we make choices about our doors, uh, about our floors, about our heating systems, you know, those are all at the extreme health in the sense that they are safety at, at a point where health outcomes can be serious and acute to use medical terms. Then we call it safety. We're not as good about chronic, but we're, at, but it's quite clear that it's part of our regulations and standard practice. And there's a whole uh, literature on healthy buildings, conferences on healthy buildings, books on healthy buildings they're taking it another step and they're really trying to push to really reducing the risk. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, recent outbreaks of respiratory syncytial virus or RSV and the seasonal flu have placed the healthcare system under great strain due to high patient volumes. The final week of November, 2022 alone saw the highest number of pediatric hospitalizations for a single week in the past decade. Dr. Straub elaborates on how the healthcare infrastructure responds to periods of high stress including outbreaks and natural disasters. As soon as you talk about the healthcare setting, it would seem obvious that you have a much more 
let's say heightened concern, but also I think different. Um, so one of the things is obviously infection control. Uh, and uh, you would obviously want to avoid um, various uh, uh, biological and physical uh, particles in the air being in, say, an operating room and entering the body of Hector, who's getting his appendix removed. Um, so, um, but also when uh, Emily is recovering from a broken leg in an orthopedic wing, it would be good if Emily was also not getting sick from somebody who has COVID uh, two doors down. Um, so that's like, I, I mean, that is a real overlap between healthcare and architecture is the infection control, airborne infection control adds a third party, which is the mechanical engineer, always a fun bunch of people. Um, and they talk about ducts and fans and filters and all kinds of words that no one else understands. But those three uh, have to be pretty tight in a uh, in a healthcare setting when you're dealing with infection control in an airborne. So with, with respect to the other aspects of architecture and health, um, I think they are fairly common across all buildings, but would be things like choosing materials that don't release volatile organic compounds, um, choosing um, mechanical systems that can actually clean the air of dust particles, uh, and, you know, again, at a high level, you're dealing with um, uh, bio biologicals like viruses. Bacteria are pretty easy, but uh, but that, what's not so easy is how do I avoid having those things grow in my mechanical system? Uh, in a lot of buildings, the mechanical ventilation system and heating and cooling system not only distributes um, pathogens throughout a building, it also is a breeding ground for them. But I would ask, so how does that hospital respond when there's a flood, when there's an earthquake, when there's a wildfire, when the power goes out for a week? Um, because those are, the answer to those questions will vary dramatically across different buildings that on the outside all look shiny and white and have nice trimmy corners and all that. But some of them are going to have really good bones and systems that can take a punch and keep working that have the flexibility to adapt. Uh, like for example, just as an example of adapt, uh, adaption of a building, in Katrina, uh, the hurricane uh, years ago in, in New Orleans, people died because they couldn't open the windows in their rooms. And, um, you know, in a hot climate, et cetera. Well, the same thing can happen in Toronto. If you have a west facing window and it's 30 degrees outside and the sun beats through, you will start killing people. Um, so no. No, that's not a problem. We have a mechanical system that provides conditioned fresh air and it's all healthy and good until we don't. And so do we have the people to evacuate those patients? Do we have a place to evacuate those patients too? This is connecting, this is a direct connection between sustainability and the healthcare uh, response is that, yeah, we're going to have to plan for a few more of these uh, resiliency, we call it, about responding to disasters. Looking ahead, Dr. Straub ends off with a nod to the future of sustainable architecture. He explains the importance of first tackling the problems at home before addressing the issues outside of our four walls. We need people who not just care about the problem, but have tools to help solve the problem. And both are 
at a short supply. I just think we need more, um, less focus on the new widget, on the next app, and more focus on something that's harder to measure, but much more lasting, which are skilled people who can work through problems and come up with solutions uh, and direct those solutions, not at blowing someone up, uh, but or or settling on Mars, but actually making the neighborhoods they live in better. In this episode, we covered a lot of new perspectives in healthcare architecture, from its principles and innovations to its environmental and social significance. As always, a special thank you to our guests on this episode for their insight, Dr. Diana Anderson, Dr. Michaela Keda, and Dr. John Straub. And of course, thank you for listening. This episode was hosted by Julia, Kayvon, and Rachel. Teodora, Rachel, Reina, and Swapna helped develop the episode's content. Janaid, Michelle, Rachel, Kayvon, Teodora, and Julia conducted the interviews. Janaid was the audio engineer and the executive producer. Until next time. Broad Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science and the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, and rate us five stars. 